Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to uh, Beverly's and Nathan's. And boy, what a song. Uh, teachers, parents, may you labor on in the strength and power and hope and courage of the Holy Spirit. What a great song. What a great prayer this morning. I could not be more proud of you, parents and teachers. Uh, well, you know, I'm so excited to begin this new series this morning. And uh, one of the things I've been hearing a lot these days is from friends and neighbors. I keep hearing this phrase. Probably you've heard it. Maybe you've even said it. I said, Aaron, I just can't wait to get back to normal. Normal school life, normal work life, normal sports life, normal church life. In fact, the only place that feels normal right now is Lowe's and Home Depot, and that's because they never left normal. But this whole idea of waiting for normal has kind of left us in this proverbial waiting room. We're just kind of waiting, waiting, twiddling our thumbs, and it seems like life is just passing us by. But what if there was more to this season than just getting through it? What if there was more to this season than just enduring it? I was talking with a friend this week. He reminded me of an old story. It's a story about a father and a son who go walking through their orange grove. The father turns to the son and he says, son, do you know when the best time is to plant a tree? The son says, no, dad, when? And the father says, well, son, 10 years ago, that's the best time to plant a tree. But then a smile comes across his face. He looks down at his son. He says, son, do you know when the second best time is to plant a tree? He says, right now, today. And in a way, that story is a glimpse of what this new series is all about. Back to life. Back to life. See, the temptation, I believe, for many of us in this season is simply to hold our breath, to, to wait it out, to ride it out, to try and endure this season. But what if God actually wants to grow something in our lives? to produce something good? What if, what if we could actually shift from simply enduring life to actively engaging life, back to life? See, during his earthly ministry, Jesus made this staggering promise to his followers. He says, listen, my friends, there is a thief, and that thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus offers real life, abundant life, full life, even in the midst of difficult seasons. And that's what I believe the Holy Spirit is calling each and every one of us to in this moment, in this season. You see, God wants to lead us back to life, but it's going to take some work on our parts. It's going to take some courage, and it's going to take some faith. You know, the truth is there are a lot of things in our lives right now that are not the way we would like them. And many of those things are way, way, way beyond our control. The pandemic isn't going to go away anytime soon. But that doesn't mean that change isn't possible. There's a famous prayer. Many of you will know it. It's called the serenity prayer. And it goes like this. It says, God Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And you see, it's that courage to change the things I can that we want to explore in this series. 
back to life. How can we discover again this kind of life that Jesus invites us to, this kind of abundant life, rich life, full life that He promises even in the midst of difficulty? And my prayer for us over these next five weeks uh, has become just that serenity prayer. I want to invite you maybe to put it up on your refrigerator or, or someplace where you might consider memorizing it. In this series, we're going to be looking at the life of a guy in the Old Testament who embodies this serenity prayer. It's a guy named Nehemiah. Now, today, I, I simply want to introduce you to Nehemiah and to his story. And I want to lay a little bit of a foundation, kind of, kind of a roadmap for where we are headed over these next few weeks. Uh, let's jump right into the text today. If you have a Bible, you can pull it out and turn to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. We're going to start right at the very beginning. Uh, the book of Nehemiah is part of what are called the historical books in the Bible. The first five books are the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That tells the story of God leading his people to the promised land. But once they are in the promised land, the historical books pick up. And if you know the story, things don't go so well after a little while in the promised land. And eventually, empire after empire comes and sacks God's people. In fact, Nehemiah is part of that exile. He is born and raised in Babylon, but he knows the stories of Jerusalem. He knows that it was once the place of God's life, of God's worship, of God's people, living life the way he designed them to live. And one day his brother comes back from a visit to Jerusalem, and that's exactly where our story picks up. Let me read this to you. This is from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah experienced something that you and I are experiencing right now. Nehemiah experienced great loss and uncertainty, and it crushed him. It was bad enough that the Babylonians had conquered his city and taken his people back to work for the king in Babylon. But now he gets word from his brother, who has just come back from a visit to the city, how terrible the conditions are back in Jerusalem. It is in total disrepair. And God's people, he says, are in great trouble and disgrace. Nehemiah has this thought. He thinks to himself, this, this is not how things are supposed to be. Things should not be this way. And his heart breaks. And as the book of Nehemiah opens, we, the readers, are presented with this kind of question. What is Nehemiah supposed to do with this information? Indeed, what are we supposed to do 
in this season of great loss and uncertainty. Now, what we're going to discover as we journey with Nehemiah is that he actually has a pretty important job in Babylon. He is the cupbearer for the king. That means he's in charge of all the wine for the palace. Sounds like a pretty good job. But he's not just the guy in charge of the wine. He's, he's not just walking around in a tuxedo serving martinis. He also seems to be in charge of the money of the palace checkbook. Now, in our day, it seems a little funny to put the wine guy in charge of the money, but maybe that's why the Babylonian Empire isn't around anymore. You see, the point is simply this. The easiest thing, the simplest thing for Nehemiah to do would have been nothing. To just keep serving wine, keep writing checks, to just sit there, to just give up and maybe complain a little bit on social media. But instead, Nehemiah decides to engage. Instead of just enduring, he courageously engages, and he does something quite remarkable. You see, the very first thing we see Nehemiah do is he stops and he prays. In fact, scholars will tell us how much this prayer marks the entire story of Nehemiah. Two-thirds of chapter 1 in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's prayer. And as we come to the ending of chapter 1, we get a hint that Nehemiah is no longer content to sit back. He must act. He must do something. And we see it here in verse 11 of chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. See, what is Nehemiah's situation here? Well, there, is many, there are many things in his life that he cannot change. He cannot single-handedly overthrow the Babylonian Empire. That's not going anywhere. He can't really change the fact that he's accountable to the king, his boss. But there are some things he can change. And so he's going to ask for God's help and trust that God wants to bring life back to his city. So today, with a few minutes we have together, as we begin this journey through the book of Nehemiah, I want to draw out four parts of Nehemiah's courage, four things that he does to engage rather than just simply sit back and endure. And the first one is this. Nehemiah has the courage to admit where things are not okay. You know, one of the most striking things about Nehemiah's story is just how honest he is and how honestly he grieves. I don't know about you, but if I was writing my own story, I'm not sure I would have put that line in there when he writes, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. <laughs> Nehemiah's first response is simply to admit that things are not okay. This is not how things are supposed to be. Jerusalem was meant to be a city of life, a city of worship, a city of joy, a city of celebration, but instead it is a city in ruins and the people are discouraged and disgraced and they are spiritually running on fumes. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? I had a conversation this week with a mom uh, whose five-year-old was getting ready to start kindergarten this year. The mom said she had been looking forward to this day for years, years of anticipation of that first day of school, the first lunch bag, the backpack, the smiles, the photos, and none of that came to pass. 
And the mom was sharing with me. She said, Aaron, I get it. I know the schools are doing the best they can. She said, but this was not how things were supposed to be. She said, I'm just angry and I'm sad and I'm disappointed and I don't even know how I'm supposed to feel. I know family members who have not been able to see loved ones in the hospital because of the pandemic. Weddings, funerals, Friday night football games, your freshman year at college, we all have the nagging sense that this is not how things were supposed to be. And it's important to name that loss. Nehemiah hears about the condition of Jerusalem and its people, and he sits down and weeps. You know, it's interesting, psychologists who study change, and particularly in the 12-step world, one of the first steps before we are ever able to make a change is simply admitting that things are not okay. They're not okay, and we long for them to be different. A couple weeks ago, right here on this stage, I hosted a conversation with Palmer Trice from the Barnabas Center, and I was so struck by something he said right at the beginning of our conversation. He said, Aaron, I realize that I've been living with low-level COVID depression. You see, before Palmer could move towards health, move towards life, he had to admit things are not okay. My own version of this I've shared in a couple messages was uh, from a little over a month ago. I, I just found myself stressed out and angry. Can I get in a hallelujah or an amen? <laughs> My fuse was so short, y'all, and I thought this is not okay. I don't want to keep living like this. I need to figure out what's happening here and figure out how to work through it. Where is life not working for you right now? Where is life not working the way it should? For some of us, it might be emotional health. For others, it might be in our relationships with our spouses or our kids. For others, it might be a, a sin habit or some other uh, habit that you keep going back to and that if you're honest, it's just sucking the life out of you. Where might the thief be robbing you of the life that Jesus wants to give you back? The first step in getting back to life is having the courage to admit where things are not okay. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He has the courage to admit it, but he also has the courage to ask for God's help. You know, just this last weekend, I was doing a garage project trying to clean out some stuff and rearrange, and I had one of those prideful, stubborn dad moments. I don't know if anybody else is like this. I had this shelf in the garage that I wanted to move, but I didn't want to go and ask for help. I, I kind of thought, I'll just do this on my own. I was too stubborn to ask for help. And so I kept working on it for about 45 minutes. I mean, I even had the dolly out, you know, the hand truck. I was trying to move it. I, I, I broke two jars, and then I finally said, you know what? I, I need to go get some help. I went up and got my 14-year-old. He came down, and we moved it in about two minutes. And in a way, I think this is a small illustration of how many of us try to live out the life of faith. We are what one author calls practical atheists. We believe in God. Yes, we do. But we live as if the Christian life is something that we must do on our own power, that we must do on our own strength. And at the risk of sounding a little pedantic, let me state the obvious, especially to those who would say uh, or would identify as a Christian. The simple truth is this. There is no life of faith without a life of prayer. 
The great reformer, Martin Luther, put it this way. He said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. My friends, faith without prayer, the Christian life without prayer is like a car without gas, like a football team without a quarterback, like nachos without jalapenos. What's the point? It does not work. And that's exactly what we see here at the beginning of Nehemiah's story. He weeps, he fasts, and then most importantly, he prays. What role does prayer play in your life right now? Where do you need God's help? Where do you need God's strength, God's power, God's resources, God's spirit? Have you asked him to help you? You know, the scriptures are actually crystal clear on this one. There is a very real conflict going on in our world, but it is not about masks or no masks, who's in office or not in office, or whether we are schooling in person or schooling online. The battleground, according to the Scriptures, is a spiritual one, and the battleground is our hearts and our souls. And prayer, my friend, prayer is how we engage with the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of faith. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does. It's exactly why he begins by crying out to God for help. But he doesn't stop there. He has the courage to admit what's wrong. He has the courage to ask for God's help, but he also has the courage to engage the help of those around him. Look at what happens next right here at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He writes, in the month of Nisan, which on the Hebrew calendar is right after the month of Toyota. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I just love this scene. The king is totally calling Nehemiah on the rug. He's saying, Nehemiah, listen, I know you're trying to hide this, but something is not right. And it's a, it's a kind of God moment here for Nehemiah. He's giving Nehemiah the opportunity to share what's really going on on the inside. And Nehemiah is faced with the same challenge that we are faced with whenever we are asked this question. Am I going to tell the truth, or am I going to play that whole cover-up game? Nah, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Yeah, how about them Dodgers, right? See, he could do the polite southern thing, or, or he can take a risk. He can engage, and he can share the more honest version of his story. And that's exactly what he does. Look with me at the very next verse. I was very much afraid. How did Nehemiah feel? He was terrified, right? This is his boss. This is the king. This is the most powerful man in the ancient Eastern world. And he said, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
which is just how you talk to kings, I think. I'm thinking about instituting something similar with my kids. May dad live forever. Uh, Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah tells the truth about the condition of his heart. See, one of the challenges in this pandemic season is that just when we need others the most, we find ourselves more isolated than ever. A recent study published in Forbes magazine shows that one out of three Americans right now are dealing with symptoms of anxiety and depression. Teenage depression and suicide is on the rise, and adult levels of loneliness, get this, are at an all-time high in the history of American culture. You see, Christian community, the life that Jesus came to offer was meant to be a place of grace and love and mutual support, but this does not, this will not happen on its own. We have to choose to engage it. That's why here at Lake Forest Church, one of our core strategies for spiritual growth and well-being is something we call belonging. Our desire is that every person Every student, every child would have a group, a circle of faith-filled friends that they get to do life with, the kind of friends that you can call on for support, for prayer, for encouragement. We're going to talk about this a lot more in just a few weeks. In fact, we've got a lot of new groups starting up this fall that you might be interested in being a part of. But for now, I just want you to do a little self-examination, a little inventory I want you to ask yourself, do I have that kind of community? Do I have those kind of faith friendships? And if not, am I willing to take a step to engage it? Well, let's get back to the story because what happens next is something that, quite honestly, no one saw coming. Remember, Nehemiah has just shared his heart with the king. He's just chosen to tell the most honest version But look at how remarkable the king's response is here. He writes in the next verse, The king said to me, Nehemiah, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. When the king asks Nehemiah what he really wants, Nehemiah has the courage to name it, to name it. The king says, Nehemiah, tell me what you want. He says, well, king, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I want to bring life back to my people. That's what I want. I want life back the way God intended it to be. And then, my friends, that is what the book of Nehemiah is all about. And it won't be easy. He's going to face opposition. There are going to be some folks who think he's crazy. But Nehemiah will continue to courageously engage as God leads him to bring life back to the city. But today, today as we finish, today as we begin this journey with Nehemiah, I want to ask you that simple question too. What is it that you want, really, I mean, if the king, if if King Artie, the most powerful man, were to ask you, or if Jesus, as he did with the blind beggar, were to ask you, or if God, 
through His Holy Spirit right now was to ask you, what is it that you want? What God-honoring longing and desire and hope would you ask Him for? For some of us, maybe it's healing for a broken relationship. Others, maybe a renewed passion for your relationship with God. Still others, maybe it's forgiveness and freedom from shame and habits in our lives that keep stealing and killing and destroying the life in us. Or perhaps for all of us, it's a renewed sense of hope that God is yet at work. What God-honoring desire will you have the courage to name as we begin this journey with Nehemiah? Well, my friends, I know that this has not been an easy season, and it's not going to get any easier. And there are many things in our world that we cannot change. We simply can't. Just like Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew the Babylonians were not going away. That was not changing anytime soon. But Nehemiah said, God, let me accept the things I cannot change, but would you give me courage to change the things I can? That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you as we enter this fall together. Will you have the courage to change and grow and follow God into this life that he wants to lead us back into? Can we pray together this serenity prayer today as we close? Would you pray out loud wherever you are with me? The words will be on the screen. Let's pray together. God, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. God, would you make that true of us in this series, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.